chapter 1, <coughs> talking about John the Baptist, uh, as we continue that tonight. Uh, several times, if you've been watching the news at all this week, uh, you've noticed the front run runner to the Democratic Party has a hard time knowing where he is sometimes. And then I guess it's rubbed off on Pastor Forsberg. We're in, we're in South Dakota, brother, so I just wanted to make sure you were. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought maybe it's, you know, it, it, it's the, as long as it's not the coronavirus, if you just catch that, we're in good shape. So, um, so uh, yeah, so Luke's, Luke 1 here, Luke 1. It's an exciting time when John was born. We talked last week about the time he came into and, the, and how uh, the, 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 the uh, world was so ready and needful to have him at that time. The conditions that surrounded him, his birth, made it even more exciting because, well, the birth of any child is always exciting, isn't it? I mean, it should be, and uh, always brings excitement to a family. But his, his was even more because he was a miracle child. He was born to old parents. Uh, his birth uh, also uh, took away their trial of uh, barrenness, which was a bad trial for them to go through. Uh, his birth uh, also had some unusual experiences. His father talked to an angel who announced it and and uh, then he had a vision. That, after that vision, he became mute and uh, deaf, I believe, as well, as we'll see in a few minutes. But tonight we'll look at the birth of John and the events that followed that. And so let's start with uh, verse number 57 of Luke chapter 1. 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her and rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. They called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And he said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father uh, how, uh, how, how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table. And he wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all, and his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake. And praised God. Father, I pray that you give us uh, just these few minutes a great clarification of what your word says here. Help us to learn some things we can apply. In Jesus' name, amen. So her full time had come. Uh, we see here the delivering of the child. Uh, she uh, gave birth to this son in her old age. The Bible says her neighbors and her cousins were there. It would be an exciting time. By the way, that term cousins in the Bible uh, really could be said relatives. It's not simply cousins, but also other relatives. Uh, in fact, Mary is called her cousin, but Mary and her had a gigantic age gap. I guess that's possible, but more than likely it was a relative, uh, and that's what the cousins really means generally in the New Testament. But uh, the birth of John the Baptist was a fulfillment of a dis divine promise. The promise was fulfilled here, the verse says, when the full time <coughs> came. This involved some patience. Between the giving of the promise and the fulfilling of the promise, this will often try the patience of the one who the promise is given to. You know, we have a lot of great promises from God. We have a lot of things that God promises us for the Christian life, but uh, there's, a, there's sometimes a, a patience involved in that. Elizabeth might be impatient for that day that she would no longer have to endure the stigma of being barren. Zechariah would... But Zacharias would want the days to pass because he was mute. He couldn't talk, and that would uh, pass that trial uh, for him. And so, But they had to wait 
for the full time. God's timing is so important, and that's the way it is with all of God's promises. Uh, We are so often frustrated when we're in a hurry and God is not, and yet we have to be patient sometimes. Uh, We have to just let his time come to fruition. Uh, We don't want to pick the fruit before it is ripe. And so sometimes uh, God allows us to go through times of waiting while he, before his promises are fulfilled until the full time comes. And so this takes time. It tests our patience sometimes, but uh, that was a part of it. It also involved punctuality. When the full time came, she brought forth a son. Now, when the full time came, it might have been after what she would have wanted, but it wasn't after God's time. It was his timing. And so he, she brought forth a son. God's never late. He's always right on time. Uh, we, it's just not going to be in our time, right? I mean, sometimes it seems like he's not on time because we have uh, our time here. Uh, but uh, how often have we felt like he was late? Because we look at our circumstances and we think that and they could have done this in, in the time, that 400 year space of silence, they could have uh, thought that God is certainly late. But from a human standpoint, it might have looked so, but not to God. And when the full time was come, Uh, the promise of God was fulfilled. God's promises are not attached to our circumstances. Amen? That's a great blessing. His promises are not tied down by our situations. God's word is always true, and his promises he will do. This is encouraging to us because there are some times that our uh, situation looks impossible from the human standpoint. The promises of God have the priority over our problems. And that's something that's a blessing for us to remember. He gives us a lot of promises. I wrote down just a few here. God's presence, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God's protection, Genesis 15, 1, I am thy shield. God's power, I will strengthen thee, Isaiah 41, 10. God's provision, I will help thee, Isaiah 41, 10. God's leading, when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, John 10, 4. God's purposes, I know thy thoughts. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, uh, of peace and not of evil. God's rest, come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. God's goodness, no good will he withhold from them uh, that work work uprightly. Uh, God's faithfulness, the Lord will not forsake uh, his people for his great name's sake. God's guidance, the meek he will guide, Psalm 25, 9. God's provision and his providence, All things work together for good to them that love the Lord. And we could go on and on and on for the rest of this service. God's promises are wonderful. And there's a lot of promises uh, in his word. What a great God we serve. And those promises we can count on. Here's a saying that I saw today that I love. You can't break God's promises by leaning on him. Amen? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Lean on his promises. Rest on them. And we can trust that it will come true. Well, the baby came. Uh, They gathered around. It was an exciting time. Zacharias and Elizabeth's house had to be full of visitors, as we see in this verse. Uh, and this is a good thing. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice that do, with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that weep. What a vital part of Christian fellowship. We ought to rejoice when someone rejoices. Uh, there should not be jealousy involved or any kind of competition. We ought to rejoice with those that are rejoicing. And that's what we see here. Uh, it may seem a small thing, by the way, to show sympathy. For someone who's going through a difficult time, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I get that as well. Sometimes we don't know what to say or we don't know the right things to uh, convey, but 
but uh, it's such an encouragement when we share in these things, rejoicing with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep. But look at what the rejoicing was. It was godly rejoicing, how the Lord had shown great mercy on her. That's what they were rejoicing about. Uh, This was not about luck. It was about the mercy of God and their rejoicing with her in it. Rejoicing in another's blessing costs us nothing, but it gives great encouragement to those we rejoice with. And that's something we ought to remember as a part of fellowship. Uh, This was was a a blessing for them to be there with her. But let's look at then the dispute about the child. A Jewish male was circumcised eight days after he was born, and that's also when he was named. And so day eight in a baby's life obviously would be a very special time, and that's why they were gathered here. Uh, What took place, though, in these few verses that we read uh, was kind of a scuffle over the name. Look at verse 59. It came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the uh, child, and they called unto him Zacharias, after the name of his father. This they, they're gathered. This is a, this is a special day. It's the day he's circumcised, named. It's a big, big time of celebration. And they called him Zacharias. This was the tradition. You called uh, many sons in that time were named after their father. There wasn't a last name. It was a connection. It was kind of how he would pass down his heritage. And so by tradition, they named him Zacharias. Uh, but Zacharias was the wrong name. Can we agree with that? Because God said his name would be John. Now, what I want us to see here, and we have to apply this to our Christian walk as well, no matter how many people agreed that his name should be Zacharias, that was still the wrong name. Uh, These folks were well-meaning. They were probably not trying to go against God. They thought they were honoring Zacharias here. But it was not the name that God had for him. The world is always poor at labeling things. They always sometimes mislabel things or or, uh, even going as far, the Bible says, as calling evil good and calling good evil. Boy, don't we see that in today's day and age, Uh, relabeling sin and those things that are wrong. Uh, Tradition, popular trends, uh, this is what everybody does, is not a replacement for divine revelation. And so mom and dad were not going to let this pass. They fixed it. We look at the correct name. She answered, Elizabeth immediately answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John, verse 60. She took a stand here. In faith, she stood for God's word. She would not go along with her friends and relatives, even though they thought that that was the thing to do. She spoke up for truth and right. And, you know, it's, it seems like a small thing, but the point is still there. What a blessing this is and what, how needed this is today that we stand for what God says, even in the face of a crowd. Uh, everybody wanted one thing. Uh, Elizabeth said, no, no, his name's going to be John. Uh, but taking a stand like that does not stop opposition. You look at what happened next when she insisted his name was John, Uh, Her friends and relatives argued with her. Verse 61, there is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. Uh, So they push it a little further, or they're confused. And will understand why she says it's John. Every stand in faith will always be disputed by the flesh. It always happens. And again, I'm not trying to make it out to be these people who are wicked, anti-God. They were probably sincere. 
But the point is still there, and I think we can make this application, that whenever we stand on what God says, there's going to be opposition. And uh, if we take a stand, there's sometimes it's going to have to be us against the crowd. If you take a stand in the home for righteousness, your kids are going to fight it. Especially when they're teenagers, there's going to be times that they'll fight against it. And uh, if you take a stand for righteousness, if you take a stand at work, it's going to be opposed by your coworkers. And hey, I, I'm sure we can all agree with this. If you take a stand in your own flesh, your own flesh will fight against you on it. If you decide to, uh, you know, break an addiction or change a habit or something, even you will uh, resist. Uh, a change for the right if you take a stand. Have you ever had to take a stand in your own life against your own flesh? I have. And I think if we're going to be faithful to God, all of us have, because Paul talks about that daily battle against the flesh. So there's always going to be opposition. It's interesting what the flesh uses to support its position. Here we see basically tradition, man-made tradition. But we have man-made ideas, human reasoning, or simply that's because that's what I want as a support for the position of what the flesh wants. I drink because my family has always drank. I lose my temper because that's what my dad did. My dad had a temper. My grandfather had a temper. I have a temper. That's just the way it is. I do this. Here's what on teenagers love. Everybody's doing it. Ever heard that from your teenager? That is the most powerful person, uh, people in the world or everybody. Everybody's doing it. So the, would you jump off a bridge? Probably they would, you know. Uh, but that's a reasoning that the flesh uses. Uh, the flesh doesn't give good reasons why we do things. It feels good. So does heroin. I think we can all agree that that's a bad idea. You know, that's a bad reasoning, and the flesh uses that. Uh, so Elizabeth had something better to base her conviction on. She had the word of God that she got from Zacharias, who got it from Gabriel, who was a messenger of God. So through those channels, she had gotten the word of God that his name would be John, and she is standing on it. It's a good thing for us to remember our faith, our stand, will not go unchallenged. Not only will skeptics argue against it, but sometimes our relatives and our family that are meeting at our home will even stand against it. And So don't let that make you question the word of God. Culture does not discredit conviction if that conviction comes from the word of God. So let's stand on it. Look at the confirmed name. We see it was a correct name. It was also confirmed because Elizabeth's word wasn't good enough for him. So they come to Zacharias. Verse 62, this is what makes me think he was also deaf as well as dumb because they made signs to him. If he wasn't deaf, they could have just said it to him, but they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table wrote saying his name, this is verse 63, we're in Luke 1, by the way, if you came in a little late, uh, his name is John, and they marveled all. I like how he says it. He did not say, we're going to call him John. He did not say, his name will be John. His name is John. God had said it. It was already settled. This is his name. It's not going to be. It is. It wasn't open for discussion. God had already decreed it. It is already in place. And I love that because, uh, by the way, this was his one and only son. He's probably not going to have another child. They're old. Uh, this is his one opportunity to have a son named after him, have a namesake. This, again, is before last names. 
So I have a son. He's stuck with my name forever, amen, whether he likes it or not. But not, not John. He would not be tagged with his father's name. And so uh, this would have been maybe tempting to his flesh, but that did not change his conviction. He was adamant in his obedience to God. I like a man or woman, for that, for that matter, any Christian who has conviction and stands on it. Amen? And uh, that's what was happening here. Now, look at the declaration about the child. Look, look at uh, Zacharias. He, he starts to talk about John. We're going to jump down to 64. Uh, and his mouth was open immediately and his tongue loosed and he spake and praised God. Uh, what a, that, right after he wrote down the name, his name will be jo- or is John. What a great example for us here because God's blessing to him, uh, his voice, immediately he used that to praise God. And that's noteworthy there uh, because so many of us uh, use, use our <coughs> excuse me blessings selfishly, often for our own promotion. But Zacharias, his mouth had been shut by unbelief. Remember, he questioned the angel, had, had a momentary unbelief, and angel shut his By the way, unbelief ought always be shut down, shouldn't it? That's what the angel did to Zacharias. But faith opened it and then put praise in his mouth. Uh, his faith was, uh, was then, as soon as he received his voice, he immediately started to praise God. So unbelief had been silenced. It always should be. But faith should be shouted from the mountaintops. Look at the title of John. We're going to jump down now to verse 76. I'm just trying to hit the high notes here. I know we want to get to actually John's life, which will start next week. But uh, look at what it says here in verse 76. Thou, child, uh, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. What a great title. And it was given by heaven. Now, the world does not esteem highly heaven's titles. For that matter, heaven doesn't esteem very highly the world's titles. Uh, You know, kings, presidents, queens, dictators, everybody's going to stand at a level ground before the Lord, and you and I, you understand. And so, uh, God is no respecter of persons, the Bible says. Uh, But here, uh, the, the world sees position with men as important, and uh, it's a tragedy for us to get caught up with worldly honor. Here it says, Thou, child, should be called the prophet of the highest. Look at the task of John. His primary duty was to be the forerunner of Christ. Gabriel had said it. Now Zacharias said it. Thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. We know this was prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It was prophesied in Malachi 3, 1. Uh, the idea of preparing the way. Now this comes from... Uh, the, an old ancient practice of heralds going before royalty and announcing uh, their arrival. <clears throat> kind of same thing happens today, only it's now the Secret Service. Uh, before the president goes anywhere, they're, they're there. They're preparing the way, and they're uh, making sure that everything is safe there. So uh, the way for the Messiah is going to be prepared by John. He's going to prepare the way for him. And this was a vital work. Look at verse 77 to give knowledge of salvation. That's a pretty good task and an important task. Israel desperately needed this message because they had a misplaced expectation of what a Messiah was. Now, we know that Israel wanted a Messiah to come and overthrow Rome. 
They wanted a king. They wanted somebody to come and deliver them. All the way until Jesus rode in on the donkey in Jerusalem a week before he died. He was, the Bible says he stopped and wept because of the misunderstanding of who they thought he was. So Israel wanted a deliverer, but they needed a savior. Now John's ministry would show them their primary need here was not political deliverance, but spiritual deliverance. This is John's job. It says to give knowledge of salvation. To show them this fact, what did he do? He rolled back his camel-haired sleeves and preached about sin and preached against uh, the things, the wickedness of that day. Those who accepted his message would be prepared for the coming Messiah. Uh, Andrew was one of them. His, Andrew was a disciple of John before he was a disciple of Jesus. He listened. He got the message. He was ready for Jesus when he came. Uh, but Israel had this mistaken notion of what a redeemer was, and they needed to be corrected in it. John the Baptist was to show them their real need to give knowledge of salvation. Now, we still have this problem today in our churches and in our society, uh, thinking that our deliverance is in the wrong place. Now, you probably won't find too many more people more political than I am. I love politics, but I have to recognize that the answer to our problems are not in the White House. Amen. I mean, I, I read one story. Of the, it was a Halloween night. The doorbell rings. And the man answers the door. and Here stands a kid in a suit saying, trick or treat. It's all decked out in a nice suit. Man asks the kid, what you're dressed up for this Halloween? He says, I'm the government takes 36% of the man's candy, leaves, and he doesn't even say thank you. Now he's running for president. Uh, the government is not the answer. The kingdom of God's not going to come on Air Force One. We know that. And yet, uh, we sometimes mistakenly think if we could only get abortion outlawed, or if we'd only uh, defeat the LGBTQEIEIO movement, if we could get rid of those things, then, then righteousness would reign. And this may be good things, but it's not going to convict anybody of sin. Morality has never restored a nation. Righteousness has. And there's a big difference there. It's a good way to build a following, and many people do that. You can be a very carnal person and get behind the American flag. So many churches are, uh, use that uh, and, and uh, try to build a following that way. By the way, I think if John had preached more of a political salvation, he'd have probably lasted a lot longer and been a lot more popular than he was, but he didn't. He preached against sin and wickedness. And like him, let's not forget why we're here. All right, really quickly here, the development of the child. Just one sentence and one verse tell us about the early development of this miracle child, John the Baptist. Uh, look at verse number 66, <coughs> back to 66, the last part of the verse. And the hand of the Lord was with him. This tells him where he got his help. This is absolutely essential if we're going to do anything for God. We've got to have the hand of God with us. But John 15, 5, without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. That's a really conclusive statement, all-inclusive statement. We can do nothing. All the work that we do for God must have the help of God to do it. John the Baptist needed God. You and I need God still if we're going to do anything for him. Uh, his duty that he was given was far too great for his physical abilities. So, by the way, his very birth required a miracle of God. And then his life was a miracle life as well. 
You cannot do <coughs> your Christian duty. I cannot do my Christian duty without God. There's just no way. We're going to get discouraged very quickly if we try to do it on our own. But we pride ourselves in thinking we can operate in self-sufficiency. Again, John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. I had that, uh, I was, we were going through uh, that, uh, I did a little, I don't know if you remember, a couple of years ago, I did a little series on that passage there, and, and I had that just written out and stuck on my desk for, for several weeks. Without me, you can do nothing. That's a, a good reminder of our own helplessness, because we really can't. We, we really can't. You know, I talked to somebody about, you know, whether you witness to somebody, give them a check. There's nothing I can do for them. I had this week. We've this week. It's 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 funny how ministry works sometimes. This week I've had just a a a, a lot of different folks with different needs uh, come through the doors here, and uh, more than more than normal. And and Satan's at work. He really is. He's trying to do everything he can to destroy families. He's doing everything he can to destroy uh, God's work going forward. And and so. Uh, you know, I look across, even as we're counseling, my wife and I have met with several people this week, and, and uh, as both of us have prayed together and, and uh, sought God's wisdom, um, we got nothing to offer. I can't, I can't do anything to help a breaking family, or I can't do anything to really do in of myself for a grieving heart. I, I just, it's going to take God to do it. And we've got to come to that realization. And if we don't get on our knees before the Lord and just tell him that, I, I, I got nothing to give here. I got nothing to offer. I'm going to need you to help me. And it's amazing uh, how he'll use you in that. But anyway, we need, to, we need the Lord. You will get defeated and you'll get discouraged if you do God's work in your own power. And uh, we need to not make the mistake of desiring the hand of man versus uh, the, over the hand of God. All right. Uh, areas of development. Verse number 80 is the verse. So that was the sentence. Then one verse in verse number 80. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit <coughs> and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Now this verse covers three areas of development. Physical, spiritual, and vocational. Uh, it says the child grew. That's his physical development. Uh, J John must have grown into a strong and able man uh, to endure his living in the wilderness. We do know from the angel that John's diet was a disciplined one. Uh, he abstained from strong drink. Later, his diet, we know, consisted of locusts and wild honey. Boy, that's a buffet spread I would pass up. Locusts and wild honey. John was not a slave to his physical appetites. In any time of his life, as we see, uh, the, 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 now the Bible doesn't talk endlessly about our physical condition. Uh, it only really talks about exercise in one place. Bodily exercise profiteth little. It does profit, but that's not shouldn't be our focus. Amen. Can I get a blessing on that? All right. Those uh, though who have no discipline in their eating habits, uh, who are slaves to the appetites of their flesh, and the appetites are very prominent. Uh, we ought to give a good testimony in how we uh, how we present ourselves. And food is one of those areas in which we can do that. I thought I think we ought to steward the bodies that God gives us. And I will move on to the next point before I get shot for preaching on eating. All right, because 
That's the Baptist sacred cow, amen, is eating. We can't drink, we can't smoke, so we eat, all right? Uh, but but uh, we ought to have a good testimony in that area. Then it says he became strong in spirit. This is his spiritual development. Many children grow healthy physically, and they're completely anemic spiritually. That's a great testimony. I really appreciate it. It's exciting for me to hear that kids are uh, excited to come to church and learn and keep that up. Don't let that stop as they grow. Uh, kids ought to grow spiritually as well as physically. Now, not, not John the Baptist did. His spiritual growth kept pace with his physical growth. And can I say tonight that spiritual growth is not an accident. If a child will grow spiritually, excuse me for using you again, but if a child will grow spiritually, it's going to be your work doing it, you know. It's going to be what you set in place for them. None of I had eight children, and you'd think law of averages, one of them would accidentally grow spiritually. No, it took work for every single one of them. Uh, all of them grew carnally, <laughs> but as we are all prone to grow carnally, but uh, it takes work. And so this is a testament, I believe, to his parents. John's parents were doing right for him. And then number three, vocational development. He was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. John's living in the desert had a lot to do, I believe, with his preparation. It gave him the opportunity to be alone with God. He developed some rock-hard convictions out there in the desert so that when his ministry did take off, when he came into public light, he had something to say worth listening to. I, I really believe we will not serve God well if we don't learn how to be alone with him, whether it's a few minutes a day, whether it's some, you know your prayer closet, wherever that is, doesn't have to be a literal closet, but uh, you know what I'm talking about, a place that you go to be alone with God. I think it's an important thing for us. The Bible gives us a lot of examples of great men who spent time in solitude with God. Moses spent many years in the desert before he went into his public ministry. Elijah was uh, spent quite a bit of time at Brook Cherith all alone uh, before he uh, did more great things for God there. Paul had his alone time in Arabia uh, before he went into his ministry. You could say Jonah had some one-on-one -on -one time with God in the belly of a fish. Uh, nobody else was there with him. Uh, and he then preached and, and had a great revival. Uh, Jesus, in his ministry, looked for times when he could go off alone and spend some alone time with God. We need times of this solitude. Uh, it, it's important. It's not always the easiest thing uh, for to, to do. You kind of have to make it happen. It might be different for different situations, I'm sure. Uh, with, with myself, I know if I don't make it happen, if I don't set time aside for it, uh, it doesn't happen. It's not something that, if, if it's done, it's done purposely, that we spend time alone with God. Now, John the Baptist did not come out of the desert, the Bible says, until the day of his showing. And it's interesting because I believe God is the one that determined that. Uh, God determines our the day of our showing, uh, and that's only when we're ready. And the problem for so many of us is that we want to have our showing in public before we have our preparation in private. John spent that time in solitude with God, and when the day came, it was like, I mean, it was like he was let go, and he came out ripping and roaring. John was uh, quite the preacher, as we'll see. 
But uh, let's not get impatient. It goes back to what we said in the beginning, waiting on God. Sometimes we have to have some patience here. Uh, John the Baptist <coughs> certainly had a fire-hot message when he came out of that desert and he started preaching. But that did not happen until he spent a lot of solitude and alone time in preparation with God. So let's not, let's not, uh, let's not, not, not disdain our preparation time. Let's, let's let ourselves be willing uh, to be prepared by God before we are used by him. Amen. Father, we thank you for